James chapter 1, you guys, um, we're just going to look at a few verses here, but very, very important verses. Turn to James chapter 1, um, just 21 through 25. I've got them up on the screen for you, but first let's pray. Oh, God, please speak to us through this passage. I, I, um, I pray that it would be a passage that would set a direction, answer some questions that perhaps a lot of us have been asking or wrestling with or wondering about in our own walks with you, um, or maybe answer questions that we didn't know we had, but that would make sense and all of those things. Lord, would you give us direction and guidance through this, and would you help me just to do a good job here? Um, I really always just feel the burden of a rightly balanced, um, divided word, and I feel that, that responsibility. So I'm just following you in this, and I surrender it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, therefore, James says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James 1, 21 through 25. This scripture succinctly outlines and describes the Christian experience as it was meant to be. It should be really, it should uh, capture your attention this morning because this really gives us a clue as to what our lives and the rhythm our lives are supposed to be in so that we can flourish as human beings. Um, This is so helpful because it's the Bible's blueprint to how or the, uh, to how we can flourish as human beings, how we can come into the fullness of our potential. Don't we all want that? Don't we all long for that? Don't we all experience things in our lives that we think, man, okay, I, I need to get better at that. I need to improve in this. I need to come into, I want joy. I want peace. I want love. I want this thing that the Bible kind of portrays as the good life. How do I do it? Uh, well, thank God the Bible is not silent about that. It gives us a blueprint as to how. And therefore, this is the blueprint. This is the path. This is the typical mode of operation that we must I think individually, and I want to propose to you as a church, we must adopt if we're going to experience this, what James calls this blessed life, blessed in all that we set our hands and hearts to. Um, And this is the life the Bible throughout claims is ours to enjoy. Are you interested in this? Yeah, I am. I need this. This is like water to my soul. We're going to look at three, three things this morning. We're going to look at the Bible's idea of salvation and see that it's much broader than what we might have thought. Okay? We're going to look at the Bible's view of salvation. Secondly, we're going to look at what has the power to save. And thirdly, we're going to look at our part in doing it, our part in, in participating with that salvation. So we're going to look at salvation. 
We'll look at what can save us and what continues to and our part to play. First, I want you to notice James says that salvation in general is a life. Did you know that? Salvation is a life. Look, he says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Notice that James is writing to Christians who he says still need to be saved. And there's a reason that bothers us. There's some reasons behind that. The Greek word is sozo for saved, and it is in the eros tense. It means a past action that is, has ongoing repercussions, that has a present tense or ongoing uh, style or, or way to it. In other words, there's an ongoing salvation that must play itself out. Although these Christians have been saved, they have the need to keep on being saved, according to James. In fact, he says that they still need to be saved from filthiness and rampant wickedness. They're Christians that need to be saved. Um, just so you know, Paul uses this very same language when it comes to salvation. I, I could have, Paul uses it all the time, but I, I'll give you one that uh, really stuck out to me. This is in Philippians when he's in jail, and this is how he frames his, his time in prison. He says in Philippians chapter 1, he says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that his imprisonment, that this will turn out for my deliverance. It's the same word. It's the same word. In other words, I'm grateful that I'm in prison because it's saving me. That's what Paul is saying. I still need to be saved. I still need to be saved. Um, it's the word soteria. It's the same, it's the, it's the, uh, noun form of the, of the verb sozo. Um, how is it, let me ask you this, how is it that we in the West have come to look at our salvation as a moment in time that our spiritual life began rather than the daily gift from God that comes to us every day? Why is it that we look at it as a moment our spiritual life began or as an abstract intellectual doctrine that we accept in that moment, rather than the daily life we receive from God. Uh, for example, over and over again, I hear Christians, Christian leaders say, and even in my own mouth, I have said I, these things in my own misunderstanding with great intentions. I've said, I've encouraged my church or the people that I'm discipling or the people that I'm teaching, take Jesus into your workplace. Take Jesus into your family. Take Jesus into the world. But doesn't that embarrassingly reveal that our normal mode is that we leave Jesus here at church on Sundays? But this, somehow, we have restricted the word salvation to mean mere forgiveness of sins by the vicarious sacrifice of Christ on the cross and where we will go to heaven when we die. We have limited the word salvation to mean that. But the apostles and the early church, you need to understand, thought of it much differently. As important and as true as those things are, it was a much broader idea. The apostles and the earliest Christians were focused on the life of Christ 
as opposed to the death or the cross of Christ. The cross and the death of Christ fit was a piece that fit in that larger motif of, the, of this life force. I can show you this by pointing out quickly that how the, the development of Christian theology came about even through Christian art over the years. Did you know that the cross as a prominent form of art didn't show up on the scene until around the 5th fifth, the fifth century? Um, on the doors of the Santa Sabina in Rome, as a matter of fact, 430 AD, the cross was emphasized in Christian artistic expression hundreds of years after the event of the cross. Now listen, I am in no way at all trying to say that early Christians didn't believe that Jesus saved them by his vicarious death on the cross. They surely did. I mean, any reading of the Bible, you, our, our sermon last week, Matthew 16, Jesus flatly said, I'm going to the cross to save the world. That's not my point. It's clear that they knew that Jesus saved them and that the cross was, was an essential and crucial piece to that. But they interpreted the cross in light of a bigger theme and that is a, a unstoppable life. The message of Jesus himself, as we will see, by the way, in starting with our home groups on October 1st, we also will start Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to see in that study that what was not em emphasized by Jesus or his followers was the forgiveness of sins, but rather a newness of life that could conquer sin and, con and could conquer death. A life force triumphing over sin and death. And as we will see in our study of Matthew, Jesus' transcendent life in the present kingdom of heaven is what drew the disciples together around him before he died or before he did any miracles. You remember when John the Baptist baptized Jesus. It's before Jesus did any miracles or, or did anything to entertain people you know, through something supernatural. Jesus came in, John the Baptist was his cousin, and Jesus came to the water, and what did, what was John's, what did John say? He said, you should be the one baptizing me. In other words, there was something about Jesus that was superior. There was something that drew people to him and made people hate him that was superior, something about his person and his life that made him a force to be reckoned with, that made people, even holy, righteous people like John the Baptist say, no, no, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. You're something, you're, you're human, but you're something, you're like the perfect human. You're something more than human. You are someone I need to follow. I should be following you. And it was the resurrection that was actually the central fact of salvation to the early church, not the cross. And here's why. Because it verified that the new life that they had already seen present in Jesus before his death could not by, be stopped by killing him on a cross. Now look, this might be semantics to you or it might be just splitting hairs, but I, I want to say it's extremely important to be saved means to be delivered from the power of darkness and translated to a kingdom, the kingdom, this is Colossians chapter 1, the kingdom of the Son who is alive. Now, when you and I think of it this way, 
like I said, it might be splitting hairs to you, but I want to hammer on it. It's incredibly important because it, it provides a completely new framework of understanding salvation. This is why the New Testament uses the simple word life to describe salvation. Over and over again, it uses the word life as a synonym for salvation. The Greek word for life used in this context is zoe, and it means, it means a quality of living. It doesn't mean, it's not talking about when you'll get life. It's talking about a quality of real life, real living. In other words, Jesus would say, up till now, you've just been existing but I want to give you a quality of life. This is John chapter 10, verse, uh, verse 10. Jesus says, I came, I have come, that they may have zoe, they may have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. Do you have an abundant life? Then you still need to be saved. Do you understand? We're still being saved. We're still coming into this. 1 John 5.12 says, he that has the Son has life, an abundant quality of vibrant health and flourishing. That is what the descriptor is of the Christian or what the Christian is growing into. This is the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, even when we were dead through our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Jesus' favorite metaphor for salvation, as we'll find out, was that of a seed. A seed that keeps growing and living and unfolding within the soil. You are plants, you are trees, the Old Testament would say, and maybe planted by some living water, by streams of living water, that, out, that you would bear fruit, that you would flourish, that you would keep growing, that we would be continually coming into salvation, sozo, an abundant life. And if we, it's strange to our ears to think of it this way because we have grown up in a culture that's reduced the cross or the act of the cross, to mere forgiveness of sins because we've narrowly interpreted it by vicarious suffering only. But if we keep it there, do you realize, let me ask you this. If salvation in Christianity is boiled down to the forgiveness of your sins and where you go when you die, does that inform you at all about how to live right now? As wonderful as that is, the answer is not really. Does that teach you how to raise your children? Sure, you can show them, well, yeah, Jesus forgave us and we should forgive other people. But it's, it's still very abstract. It, it leaves the word should in there. We should forgive. We should do. Instead of, no, no, forgiveness is the way to come into abundance, is the way to come into power. Forgiving other people is the way to flourish. It's the way to be truly human. You see the difference? It's very different. It hamstrings if we keep it there. It leaves us lethargic with a tired faith that has really nothing to do with our lives right now. We end up with a kind of Christianity that says, yeah, life is hard and I've got these problems, but someday when I die and go to heaven, it'll all be made right, which is, hear me, that is true to a certain extent. But what about, did you know God, Jesus says, I've come to give you an abundant life now. 
I've come to make you flourish to some extent now that puts you on a trajectory into eternity. Do you see the difference? It's very, very important that this is what we strive for, that this is what we live for. James, secondly, not only says that salvation in the Bible throughout, that salvation is a kind of life, not just a destination, but a kind of life. James says that the word, that is the word logos, that has been implanted in us, there's our metaphor of a seed, an implantation of the logos, something eternal in us, has the power to keep on saving us. The word logos is referring to the eternal word of God that was active in the world before it was inscripturated in, in written form. Did you know that? Um, in the, the, my favorite uh, passage is Galatians chapter 3 where Paul says that in Abraham's day, the gospel, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, it says the gospel preached the, uh, uh, the, the scripture preached the gospel to Abraham. In other words, the scripture to Paul is personified as a person. Before it was written down, scripture was alive. And imparting the gospel, preaching the gospel to Abraham. So the scripture, Logos, is this eternal word of God that was active, active before it was written down, and he likens the word of God here, notice what James likens it to, to a mirror that mankind looks into to find an image of themselves. That's the metaphor he's saying. He's saying the Bible, when you all read the Bible, it's like looking into a mirror and seeing an image of yourself. What does it mean by that? He goes on to say, that the, that the word, the Bible, the logos, is the perfect law of liberty. In other words, it's the law to make you free. It's a law that you follow, that you submit to, because it's going to give you freedom. It's going to move you into what it really means to be human, a better way to live. So the word, the Bible, according to James, is eternal, and when we look in it, it shows us a free humanity. It shows you a vision of who you were meant to be. Isn't that something? A humanity, the way it was always meant to be. What was mankind intended to be? What were you meant to be? How were you meant to thrive and flourish and be? This is at the heart of, of all of us. And it's hard, it's hard for us to answer that here because everywhere we look, we see versions of humanity that are quite um, hard to look at. Just go to your newsfeed and scroll. Just a swipe to the right and a scroll down. You will see bad news, corruption, hatred, hurt, uh, you know, war, um, injustice. You'll see it everywhere. So it's hard for us to understand, to have this vision when, you, when, you, when our starting point is here. But in Genesis 1, the Bible has such a high view of humanity. In Genesis 1, the Bible says, then God said, let us make man in our image. Look at the high view the Bible has of you. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created you all, mankind, in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, and God blessed them. 
And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. That means manage it, rule over it. We are royalty and have dominion over the fish and over the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. According to this, mankind uniquely is the image of God. That is, there is something, think of this, there is something structurally inherent in each of you. In your image, in who you are, in your structure, be it our ability to reason, uh, to worship, to love, certainly that we're in, uh, certainly that at very least that we're engendered in a society that's, that's corresponding with the pronouns here for God as us and our. We are a social people. We, you are the image of God, but we are the image of God together as a society, as a plurality. Something about the way we are made represents God's image in creation. But image of God is not only a noun, but it's a verb. In other words, not only are you image of God, but you are imaging God. That's what we do. We Im- in fact, the word in the Hebrew, is the, the word for image is the word selim. It, it just simply means a carved image in the likeness of a king. So, and I've told you this before, but kings in the ancient Near East, um, when they wanted to let people know where their territory was, they would carve a statue of themselves or sort image of themselves, and they would place those images all around the locations of their dominion. So when travelers were walking through, they would say, oh, this belongs to this guy. This is his kingdom. Likeness means demuth. It just means in the, to be in, in the likeness of. And when you put together, it means that we are God's representatives, that when people would, or any, when creation would come by, we, we would say, okay, we're in, the, we're in the kingdom of God because people are here. These are God's. But also, we do this by ruling, by stewarding, by managing, by loving, by caring, and doing this as God would. The idea is that mankind was uniquely meant to be in relationship with God, so to love, you know what Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then, we, because of that relationship, we can rightly represent how he is to, ever, to everything and everyone around us. Does that make sense? Are you with me on that? That's what it means to be in the image of God. We've discussed it at some length before, but To sum it up, mankind was made like God in that we are creative managers of God's creation, made with the capacity to love God and to love each other and to take care of God's good world the way he would. In the language of C.S. Lewis in the Narnia series, we are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, and because of that, we are royalty. We are kings under the high king, God himself. That is... The Bible's, that when you look into a mirror, the mirror of the word, that's what you see, this incredible view of humanity. But the first humans, as you know, the story goes on, they broke off from God and therefore failed to image him. The real tragedy of sin on the image of God, images of God like us, is that though mankind retains the structural image of the bearer, we are no longer able to function the way God intended us to function. Uh, Old Testament scholar Anthony Hokema says this. He says, what makes sin so serious is precisely the fact that man 
um, is now using God-given and God-imaging powers and gifts to do things that are affront to God. We use the very gifts that we've been given to go against him. See, a, a virus, you could say, has been embedded in man, corrupting the software of our operating system, orienting our God-given functions inward towards ourselves rather than towards God and pointing and glorifying God. So fast forward to Moses. God gave his chosen people Israel detailed laws under Moses to get specific on how a person or a people is to image God in order to achieve inner transformation, to save us from this virus that's going on inside of us. Please note this. I need to redeem the idea of the law a little bit because we think of it almost completely negatively. But the law of Moses was meant to make someone holy, That is, to transform our character from the inside out. It was not meant to just regulate people's external behaviors only. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 7 through 8. He says, be holy as I am holy. That's right when he was giving them the law. This is so that you can be holy, a holy people. Um, And what happened? Did the people, was it pass or fail? Fail. Really, really bad. And then enters the most amazing human being of all, the one that John says is the Logos made flesh, and he is the fulfillment of the perfect law. That's what Jesus said about himself. Let's be clear. Before we get into Matthew, well, let me just read it to you. This is, Matthew, this is Jesus' take on the Old Testament and on the law. Here it is. He says, do not think that I have come to end or abolish or get rid of the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, I am the living embodiment of the law of Moses, and I am the perfect human being. I am what you look to me and you'll know what humanity was meant to be. Do you see what James is saying? When mankind looks into the mirror of the word, who do they see, whose face do they see shining back at them? It's the Sunday school answer, you guys. Jesus. They see Jesus looking back at them. Not just as this, um, oh man, he's, we tend to dismiss Jesus as humanity because he's God. And we just think, well, yeah. I mean, if I was God, I'd walk on water too. If I was God, sure, I, would, I could go without food for 40 days. We think, and so we kind of quickly in our brains, we do this quick trick where we just kind of go, ah, we can't, that's unattainable, we can't do that. But Jesus has come to say, no, 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 I have done this in complete dependence on my Father, just like any human being. This is the way to come in to flourishing. That is, salvation then is not just forgiveness of sins, but real life through the gradual transforming of being more and more like him. Let me read that again. Salvation, then, is not just forgiveness of sins. Again, as important as that is, we all need our sins forgiven. I'm not poo-pooing that. 
But real salvation is, is a real life through the gradual transformation of being more and more like Jesus. Colossians says that we are being transformed into the image of God. Colossians says he's the ultimate image of God. The Greek word is ikion, where we get our word icon. He is the icon of what it means to be the imago Dei. This is what life is. This is what we have. This is... This is what he's saying is available for us. Like Jesus. And becoming more and more like Jesus. And that is how the word saves you. What is, now, how does the word go on saving us? This is point number three. Look at verse 22. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself, and here's where he gets into his metaphor, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his face, his natural face in the mirror, and he sees Jesus, he sees who he is, he sees who he's meant to be, and then he, uh, he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Um, scholars have called what James is describing here, and I love this, spiritual amnesia. When we just sit under a Bible study or come to church on Sundays and we get information that inspires us, but then we leave and live life as usual, back to equilibrium, James is saying we have spiritual amnesia. We, f- we forget. It's like looking at yourself in the mirror and going, oh, okay, that's who I am. It's an identity. This is me. And then walking away and just completely forgetting and acting like someone we're not. That's what he's saying we are. According to this, we are transformed as we hear the teachings of Jesus and practice the way of Jesus. Do. Like, we, you need to, we need to make a decision as a church. We're a people that hear the words of Jesus, but we do what Jesus told us to do, and we're going to live the way Jesus himself lived. And these two things were never meant to be separated And those who separate them, according to James, suffer from spiritual amnesia. We've forgotten who we are. I believe that this is probably one of the biggest problems in our Western Christian moment right now. We have largely intellectualized our faith. In other words, we hear it and we believe it. We say, okay, I agree with it, but we haven't made a life practice out of it. Somehow our faith does not change the way we raise our kids or pay our bills or what we, the way we look at the purpose of our life in general and who we are and therefore affect what we do. That's why you can see in the world today such, and why the world can see when they look at the church such a dichotomy between what we say we believe and how we live. And part of this is because of what we discussed earlier. If salvation is merely the forgiveness of sins and going to heaven when we die, as important as that is, it doesn't play much of a bearing on the way we live. This is tough for us because our culture has experienced, especially in the way we educate our next generation, how we educate children, we've experienced almost a complete departure from the philosophy of, of human formation. America's founders 
had a healthy realism regarding the nature of human beings, and they drafted the Constitution as a way to mitigate the ills inherent in being a human. Listen to what Benjamin Franklin said. He said, men I find to be the sort of beings very badly constructed, Benjamin Franklin said. He said, as they are generally more easily provoked than reconciled, more disposed to mischief to each other than to make reparation, and much more easily deceived than undeceived. Because of this realism regarding mankind, for roughly about 150 years, Americans were obsessed with moral and character formation over and above intellectual education. Did you know that? Listen to Noah Webster. He says, the virtues of men are of more consequence to society. The virtues of men are of more consequence to society than their abilities. And for this reason, the heart should be cultivated much more assuredly than the head. The progressive philosopher John Dewey wrote in 1909 that schools should teach morality, quote, every moment of the day, five days of the week. Character formation. Hollis Frizzle, this is the president of the Hampton Institute, which was an early school for Africans. He declared, character is the main object in education. And as late as 1951, a commission organized by the National Education Association, one of the main teachers unions at that time, at that time, they, state, they stated this, quote, an unremitting concern for moral and spiritual values continue to be a top priority of education in America. It's as, as late as 1951. The, you can see a shift. Now, the way we educate ourselves, our culture, is about attaining to a body of knowledge, knowing the facts. And that's, I'm not, that's fine, but there's been a shift in emphasis According to the Bible, and this is why church ought to be different, according to the Bible, God is interested in transformation, not just information. That's very important, why churches are different by how we do things. You are not here, but it's hard when you come from out there that, does, that thinks of information and facts, and we have these devices in our pockets where we can just, we have information at our fingertips it's hard when we come in here to think, oh, now it's about transforming my character and my, my whole entire person. So we end up consuming information from a sermon or from the Bible rather than seeing it differently. According to the Bible, Christianity is mind and body, and the two are meant to inform each other. I say this all the time now because I'm really stuck with me. I think Christianity is more like a sport than it is about being in a classroom. The Greek word that James uses here for doer is the word poetis, um, and it means someone who practices something. And it's very logical. It's not, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not like in the spiritual realm. It's actually common sense. Um, I, I went to, Nicole and I, one of our favorite artists is John Mayer. We love John Mary. We think he's an amazing, amazing guitar player and singer and songwriter. And he's just kind of one of those guys that has the full package. Very gifted person. And we got to see his concert at the Climate Pledge a few years ago. And it was just an incredible event. And Nicole and I still look back with, um, we just loved it. And if you're a musician, you can really appreciate, appreciate John Mayer. 
One of the things that he said was, um, I knew I had this talent, and so he began playing in his room by himself for eight hours every day. He would just, when he was done with high school, and actually, I think he said junior, senior year, and then done with, he locked himself in his room, and he would not come out. He would just play scales on his guitar, getting his fingers used to it over and 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 over again. Pianist um, uh, Sam Rotman from the, the Juilliard School, who now goes around and, and does concerts, he practices the piano eight hours every day. Here's the thing. Nicole and I just showed up to the concert. All we saw was two hours of John Mayer. We saw a, an event, and we thought, whoa, he's so good. He would not have been that way without what we did not see, and that is a lifestyle of choices and sacrifices and maybe perhaps a, di a certain diet and repetition, 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 repetition that brought him into the greatness of being John Mayer. You see, it's very common sense. The spiritual life, what I'm telling you in the Bible, the spiritual life says it's no different. If you want to enter into the good life, we don't just hear, we do. We practice certain things, and we cannot do that alone. We've got to do it together. This is why home groups are so important for us, because right now, to be frank with you, I love our church. Our church is, I'm like super happy with Calvary Wallingford. I love it so much. But we're largely focused on one day out of a, of a whole week and for two hours out of that whole day rather than practicing something together as a lifestyle. This is why home groups, our, our vision for home groups is not get together and do whatever. That's not it. We're going to be practicing the way of Jesus in community with each other, talking about it, fleshing it out, talking about what works, what doesn't work. Our, perhaps our questions about it or maybe even our pushback about certain things. This isn't practical and we can work it out together and try it together and become, it's not a, so in a sense, Christianity is one minute you're not saved and the next second you are. But in another sense, it is a coming into who we are. Looking in a mirror and saying, whoa, there's Jesus, and I can walk and practice his way of life, and I can experience that level of resurrection life in my life. Don't you want that? You want your relationships to be healed. You want to wake up with a sense of purpose and meaning and knowing that when you walk into a room, people are drawn to you because they know that you, you know somebody, that you have a higher force than they do. I want to just be around her. I want to learn what makes him tick. I don't know what he's got, but man, he's living a life that I know I need. That's evangelism. That's evangelism. That the world would see a different kind of person in those moments. And people would say, like showing up to a John Mayer concert, they would come and they would say, Scott, what makes you who you are? And he would say, well, I practice a certain way. You just see me in a moment. Or that people would come onto Richard's bus and they would say, Richard, what, you, what is your secret about being this bus? And Richard would say, you see me, you know, for a few rides a day. What you don't see is a practice of serving and following the way of Jesus. That is what, come. What was Jesus, when Jesus was walking by his disciples, 
And he sees them, it basically, he sees them in their normal everyday, it's like a picture of humanity in their normal day life. What does Jesus say? Did he say, believe this, 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 and this, bow your heads, close your eyes, come forward, and boom! No, what did he say? That the answer to, hum, to human, the hum, human problem, I've come to bring my kingdom, what's the answer? Follow me. Follow me. In other words, live. Watch how I live. See what I do. Learn and do. Poieo. Practice. 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 See, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. You are saved if, you're, if, you, did, if you did close your eyes and bow your head and, and all of that, and you came forward at an event or you said the prayer. Look, you are saved, but you are being transformed. You are saved, but you are being saved. You are being transformed, and you have a part to play in that. If John Mayer got up, said, okay, I've, I've got some natural talent. I think I could make something of this, but then didn't practice, never got back to his guitar, go hung out with his friends instead, we would start to question who he really thinks he is. Do you really think that you have that talent? Then how come you're not investing in it? According to the Bible, you cannot separate these things. I believe this is what a lot of us are missing, including myself, when it comes to our growth individually and as a church, when it comes to our transformation, when it comes to human flourishing. A lot of us hear and feel inspired, but then don't experience victory in our lives. James would say that we are experiencing spiritual amnesia. We've forgotten who we are. Because when we see who we are in the mirror of God's word, it inspires us to do certain things. John Mayer or any musician, there was something that grabbed an image, of positive image of what they could be. And a a lot of things that maybe we would disagree with, like I want to be a billionaire. I think I could do it. Or I want reputation. I want to be famous. Whatever it is. But an image of who they could be gripped their mind and had so much overturned that it got them out of bed every morning and made them say no to certain things and yes to other things. And over a long time, they started to come into that image. Do you understand? First, there's an image that needs to grip us. When we come, when Christians come and say, well, you should be reading the Bible and we should be praying. Why though? We miss that part. It just becomes a bunch of shoulds. You should get up early. You should spend some time alone. Well, you know, you should, you should, you should, you should, you should, you should, you should. Instead of saying, there's an image of what you could be that has gripped your imagination. My marriage could be healed. Oh my gosh. I could have a thriving, intimate relationship with my wife or my husband. Okay, what do I got to do? I could, be, I could live a fulfilled life where I'm not easily offended. I'm comfortable in my own skin. I can forgive. I can love God. This is the image. Okay, woo! I have this potential. And it inspires you to get up. You need both. You need both. I think it's because we have not understood that our practicing the way of Jesus in our life is our way of participating. And we can't do it alone. We cannot do it alone. Let's become a community committed 
to following the way of Jesus together by the power of the Holy Spirit as we do and flourish and grow together, as we keep practicing and growing together, we can come in to this great vision of who we were meant to be. Amen.